You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch as he teaches through the book of Ephesians. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them there. Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 1 through 21 this morning. And we're in that second section of Ephesians where Paul is describing what the walk or the lifestyle of a follower of Jesus Christ should look like. It is that practical section whereby we now get to put into practice the principles that we learned in chapters 1 through 3. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul detailed for us the blessings, the wealth that we have as believers. You remember chapter 1, verse 3, he tells us that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And he talked a lot about all of the wealth that we have as believers in those chapters. And then beginning in chapter 4, he began to tell us how we can put it into practice because if we're not putting the principles into practice, then they're worthless and they're meaningless to us. And Paul sets the stage for our text this morning in verse 17 of chapter 4 where he says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. And so Paul then goes on to describe what we were as he talks about what that means to be futile in your mind and, and what it looked like to be a person who was unregenerate. He talks about what we were and then he then told us who we are now and how that transformation should look in our lives. And here in chapter 5, Paul takes it a step further in verse 1 as he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. He says, look, the way in which you should walk is by following Jesus, by being an imitator of God. Because a Christian, you guys, by definition, is a follower of Jesus. We need to understand that. That by definition, we are followers of Jesus. And so our walk or our lifestyle as Christians, albeit challenging due to our flesh, due to the world, due to the enemy of our souls who wants to kill and steal and to destroy, it's challenging, yes, but it's not complicated. The Christian life is challenging, there's no question about that, but it's not complicated. It's not like we have to go out and, and figure out how it is that we're supposed to walk. We just follow Jesus. It's not complicated. We just simply walk the way He walked. We imitate Him. Jesus is the perfect representation of God. Perfect representation. Colossians 1 verse 15 tells us that. And so how we live needs to be how He lived. We look at how He lived His life. We look at the Gospels and, and we mimic that. We imitate that. We pattern our life after the model that He set for us. It's always easier to follow somebody than, than to blaze your own trail or to try to figure it out on your own. It's like when you go to a, a city that you've never been to before and, and you're going to visit a friend and it's always easier if they meet you somewhere. You come into the city and you call them and you say, I'm here and they go, where are you at? And you're like, well, I'm at the McDonald's on the corner of 5th and Broadway. Really? Okay, I'll, I'll drive down there and, and I'll meet you and then you can follow me to your house, to their house. It's It's beautiful. It's the way that it should be because driving around and, and trying to find stuff is hard when you don't know where you're going. We can always follow someone and, and it's much easier than trying to figure it out on our own. And Jesus has said, look, just follow me. Look at my example. Look at my life. Look at the way I live and be an imitator. He says, as dear children, be an imitator of God, which is following Jesus as dear children. 
Children enjoy mimicking their parents. Sometimes they do it out of mockery when they get older. But when they're younger, they, they mimic you. Maybe they see dad swinging a hammer, so, you know, they're swinging a hammer and they're destroying stuff and they're trying to help. Or maybe they see mom cooking something, so they're pulling the pots and pans out of the drawers and they're making a mess with the water and they've got stuff everywhere and they're mimicking. And just as children find pleasure in that, so too we, as believers, we should find pleasure in being an imitator of our Lord. In our text this morning, we're going to see three ways in which a Christian should walk or a Christian should mimic Jesus. We're going to see that we need to walk in love, that we need to walk in holiness, and that we need to walk in wisdom. So let's look at the first point, walking in love, verses 2 through 7. It says, And walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. And so he says the first way in which we ought to walk, the first way in which we mimic Jesus, is by walking in love. Our model of love is Jesus. As it says here, walk in love as Christ also has loved us. Jesus is our model of love. It's not a TV show. It's not a novel. It's not some relationship that maybe you're trying to achieve to. Maybe you, you want to have the love uh, that your mom and dad had for each other. And as much as that might have been true, that's still not our model for love. Jesus is our model of love. Because He willingly surrendered His life so that we might have forgiveness of sins and redemption from hell. Jesus willingly did that. He wasn't forced into it. He wasn't bribed. He did it because He loved us. While we were still sinners. When we were without strength, Romans 5 tells us, Jesus demonstrated His love for us. He demonstrated. Often love is, is verbalized, but very, very infrequently is love tangibly demonstrated. Jesus did that though for us. He is our model of love. In fact, John 15 verse 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. That was Jesus. The greatest love, the greatest demonstration of love in all of human history. But love in our culture is absolutely warped because we use the word love to describe our affinity for a certain kind of ice cream or for Starbucks coffee or for walks along the beach. And none of those things are, are, are bad or wrong. But if we're using that love to describe the kind of love that we ought to have for one another, it falls so helplessly short. Love in our culture is absolutely warm because selfishness and lust is often mistaken for love. We have the model of love in Jesus, but often what is called love in our culture is nothing more than selfishness and lust. Jesus, however, is our ultimate example of love. And there was nothing selfish or lustful about Him. 
Because you see, love gifts, as it talks about here, that we should love and walk in love as Christ loved us because He gave Himself for us, an offering, a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma, which basically means it was pleasing to God. That when God the Father looked upon His Son and He poured out His wrath upon Him, that that sacrifice was pleasing to God. In fact, Isaiah 53 tells us that it pleased the Father to wound His Son. It pleased Him because that sacrifice was for us. And so our example of love is a giving love. But man, the love that we see in our culture, and our society, it's a love that wants to take. It's a love that says, me, me, me. But true love, agape love, gives. True love sacrifices. True love is pleasing to God, as we see here. And Paul describes love in 1 Corinthians 13. And all the characteristics of love given there are fully embodied in Jesus. In other words, you can put Jesus' name in those characteristics and it fits perfectly. That Jesus is kind. That Jesus bears all things. That Jesus hopes all things. Now, if you put my name in there, it's absolutely ridiculous. But you can put Jesus' name in there, and it fits wonderfully. And you know the interesting thing about love? Something that, that we don't often think about in regard to love is that sometimes love hates. You guys need to understand that. That sometimes love hates. What do I mean by that? Well, Paul put it like this in Romans 12.9. This is the New Living Translation. Don't just pretend that you love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Stand on the side of good. And so sometimes, you guys, love hates. Love doesn't accept everything, which is the common mantra of our culture. That love just accepts everything. That everything is good. No, love hates certain things. Love hates the things that God hates. You see, God is perfect in love. In fact, First John tells us God is love. And God hates sin. And so there are times that love hates and we ought to hate the things that true love hates. And in verses 3 and 4, Paul gives us a list of things that we ought to hate. That ought to be repulsive to us. Paul uses a comprehensive list of sexual sins here. These are activities that are often mistaken for love. This type of sexual sin is often mistaken for love in our culture, isn't it? But these things are not love at all. They are base, lustful desires originating in our fallen flesh. Ephesus, the city to which this church resided, in which Paul is writing this letter. Ephesus was a debauched city. A city not unlike Las Vegas or San Francisco or any other major city that you can think of. It was a immoral city. The center of attention was the temple of Artemis, or what is sometimes known as the temple of Diana. And maybe you've seen Diana. She's that multi-breasted idol in which basically people would worship by indulging themselves in whatever sexual activity they felt like and whatever sexual activity made them happy. The temple of Artemis was basically one big brothel where people celebrated their freedom sexually where people express their sexuality in ways that was absolutely deprived and absolutely opposed to God. Sound familiar? Sounds like our culture. And this was the culture in which Paul was writing. And he gives a list, a comprehensive list of sexual sins. He says fornication, 
In the Greek, the word is pornea, from which we get our word pornography. It's a broad word describing any type of sexual sin. It could describe a man and a woman having sex before they are married, which that has become absolutely acceptable in our culture. Hey, you've got to, you've got to test drive the car before you buy it. You've got to kick the tires a little bit, right? That's what, what people say in our culture, in our society. I mean, hey, how can you live with somebody and marry somebody if you don't even know them in that way? I mean, how, how do you know whether or not you're compatible? And it, it sounds logical for a moment. It, it sounds like using some wisdom until you understand the damage and the destruction that it causes. This could describe a man and a woman having sex while married, but not to each other. We would call that adultery. And hey, in our culture, and our society, that's acceptable. That's something that used to be worthy of death. But in our culture, in our society, it's absolutely acceptable. In fact, they have places where you can go and, and swap spouses. And, and that is becoming something that is commonplace. Adultery isn't looked down upon anymore. Hey, you, you need to do what makes you feel happy. If your husband, if your wife isn't making you feel happy, then you need to find somebody that will. It could describe homosexuality, this word, fornication. And again, a generation ago, homosexuality would have been and was something that was not accepted, was something that was not tolerated. But in our culture, it's celebrated. In our culture, we're, we're even allowing them to have the same rights as monogamous marriages. It could describe bestiality. Now, thank the Lord that this is not acceptable in our culture and society yet, but ten years from now, it might be. Ten years from now, this might be something that, that people begin to say, well, hey, whatever makes you happy, celebrate your freedom. You know, whatever you need to do to express yourself sexually. And, and bestiality is not commonplace, it's not accepted, but it does happen. And it is available, and it's absolutely defined. It could describe incest. It could describe pornography, which is an absolute epidemic in our culture, in our society. With the advent of the Internet, it's become more available than ever. And as men especially, we have to guard ourselves. We have to be so careful because it's so available. It's so prevalent. This could describe strip clubs. It could describe lusting in your mind after another person who is not your spouse. This word is very broad, speaking of sexual sin. It talks about uncleanness. Dirty, immoral behavior is what uncleanness would speak of. He talks about covetousness. And contextually, this would speak of the lust or sensual desire for a person to whom you are not married. Coveting, lusting after a person who is not your spouse. And we have to guard our minds. We, we cannot allow that to dwell in our minds. We have to reject those thoughts. We have to reject that, that covetous desire. And that really is where sexual sin starts. It begins in our heart, and it begins with coveting, with wanting something that isn't yours, with wanting that which God hasn't given you. He talks about filthiness. And this is similar to uncleanness. It's things that are shameful or obscene. Things that you know in your heart are shameful, and they're obscene, but the world is beginning to say it's okay. It's acceptable. And we've been desensitized by primetime programming. We've been desensitized by the television and by the internet because, well, look, I mean, everybody's doing that. And Desperate Housewives has become sort of the accepted practice. I mean, whatever it is you need to do to make 
yourself happy where a generation ago that would have been shameful or obscene. You see how we're degenerating. And every show has that element of fornication and uncleanness and covetousness and filthiness. And I'm not saying burn or run your TV over. I'm just saying be careful. You've heard me say enough times that I get really tired of of people that define themselves by what they don't do. And I don't think that is at all what Jesus would have for us. I'm not impressed by people that don't have a TV. What do you do? Good for you. That's awesome. What I'm more impressed by is people that can be in this culture and not of it. And look, if you have an issue, a problem, then you have to make steps, extreme measures to not allow yourself to be put in those situations. But I think we have to be careful. Of, of even some of what might be considered harmless television shows that desensitize us, that, that tell us that these things are okay when nurses and doctors are just, you know, swapping each other around and, and that's just, you know, the greatest thing because the doctors are hot and the nurses are, you know, whatever. And, and it's just, oh man, the greatest show on TV, you know, Grey's Anatomy or whatever. And it's like the, it's the, the number one show. It's just terrible. Why would we allow ourselves to to uh, enjoy the the absolute depravity of man. There's plenty of, of things that we can watch that, that, that aren't celebrating. Let's not celebrate it along with the world. It talks about foolish talking or coarse jesting. This would be dirty sexual humor. Typically humor that uses double entendres to take something harmless and make it dirty or impure. Now if you're witty, if you're smart, if you're a person that has a good sense of humor, this is easy to do. It's it's something that just kind of, it's a snowball. It starts out kind of small, and before you know it, you're making inappropriate jokes. And, and look, my sense of humor gets away from me often. And I have to be careful about what I laugh at and, and what I say, because I love humor. I love David Letterman, probably like one of my favorites. But he gets inappropriate oftentimes. And so I have to be careful. If, if it's going in that direction, then you have to be choosy about what you're watching and what you laugh at. And, and most comedies are coarse jesting and foolish talking because we find it funny. And you have to be careful in your workplace of what you're laughing at and what you're saying and, and, and what you allow yourself to be a part of. And I will say this is that if you're in the midst of that, it's it's difficult not to laugh at those things if you're not fully immersed in Jesus on a daily basis. Those things don't cease to be funny in our flesh. Our sense of humor doesn't just go away. And so we have to be careful that we're immersing our mind in the things of, of Jesus and not the things of the flesh. And those things will slowly and surely not be as funny to us, especially when we begin to think about and we begin to evaluate the damage that those things caused in people's lives. And when you've seen the damage that those things caused, all of a sudden, it's not as fun. It's not humorous. We have to be careful of foolish talking, coarse jesting. We have to be careful of what we watch and what we're entertained by. Because I think that many Christians feel like they're doing really well because they're not involved in those things personally. But then to laugh at them, to be entertained by them, is okay. And, and no, it isn't okay. What are we allowing ourselves to be entertained by, to be humored by? Paul says here, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for sin. Let it not even be named among you. 
How sad when a person who's a follower of Jesus gets caught up in sexual sin, gets caught up in adultery. How sad when church leaders, and, and that's becoming an epidemic in our culture and in our society. How sad it shouldn't even be named among us. And God doesn't say, avoid these things so that you can be a saint. That's, that's like automatically where our legalistic mind goes, right? I, I've got to avoid these things so that God will accept me. And I just take cold showers and I just beat myself and, and God will then love me and God will, will accept me because of that. No, he doesn't say that at all here. He says, avoid these things because you are a saint. You see the difference? You already are whole. It's been given to you. It's been imputed to your account. You are righteous. You are a saint. And we work from that place. See, we're not working toward holiness. We're working from it. We're not working toward victory. We're working from a place of victory. It's a huge difference. You're not working yourself toward sainthood so that someday maybe your picture can be on some stained glass somewhere. That's not what it means to be a saint. What it means to be a saint is that you have accepted Jesus' deposit of righteousness into your account. We understand that kind of terminology. You make a deposit into your bank account, and you know what? You can even make a deposit into someone else's bank account, and the bank doesn't care. You can't take money out, but you can put money in. And if you'd like to do that, I'll give you my account and tell you where to go. But you can put money in someone else's account. That's what Jesus did for us. He he opened up our account, and man, it was empty. You want to talk about going in the red. Spiritually speaking, we were in the red. The Bible says, in fact, that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know what that word poor in spirit, that phrase poor in spirit means? It means that you're spiritually bankrupt. It means that when God looked at your account, when he brought it up online, online spiritual banking, and he looked at it, it was like a big zero. There's nothing there. In fact, we're way into the red. And Jesus came and gave his life and he deposited his righteousness into your account. The Bible says that he who knew no sin was made to be sin with our sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He took his righteousness, his life, and he deposited into your account, not based upon your performance, but based upon his love for you, his love for me. And now he says, I declare you a saint. And so we work from that place. And so we say, man, I don't want to be a part of these things. I don't want to be characterized by these sins. I don't have to do that. I can abstain from these things. I can avoid these things. And the theme of this book is just that, understanding our position in Christ. That's the theme of this book. Understanding that you are in Christ. Therefore, because we are in Christ, we cannot be characterized by sexual sins because we're in Christ. He says, which are not fitting but rather giving of thanks in verse 4. These things are not fitting, but we should give thanks. And what's Paul talking about? He's talking about sex. And so we shouldn't be involved in perverted sexual sin, but we should give thanks for sex because God created it for us to enjoy. If God didn't want us to enjoy it, then He wouldn't have made it feel good. It's pretty simple. If God didn't want us to enjoy it, then He would have made some other way for us to, to propagate and to reproduce. God made it for us to enjoy, but within the confines and the guidelines of what is good. And so we should enjoy it. 
But what happens often is because we've exploited it, because we rebelled against God, because we exercised our sexuality in a sinful way previous to coming to Christ, then we come to Christ and it's like all of a sudden sex is bad. And that's what the church has made it. And I dare say that I think that's why our teens in the church are experimenting sexually so much because we're not telling them about how God intended it. We're embarrassed. We're ashamed of it. It's nothing to be ashamed of. God created it for us to enjoy. And we can talk about it from the pulpit like I'm doing this morning. So many guys are unwilling to do that. Oh, it's embarrassing. What's embarrassing about it? It's embarrassing to talk about it. It shouldn't be if you're expressing yourself in a pure and righteous and holy way with that husband or that wife that God has given you. And we should be doing that often. And you should be enjoying it. And if you're not, there's something wrong in your relationship. There's something that needs to be fixed. There's something that's arrived. Last week we talked about not letting the sun go down on your anger. I talked about how you need to deal with things as as a husband and as a wife, not going uh, to sleep upset and angry about things because it makes your heart hard. I'll say this, that you work through those things and you pray through those things and you get it right. And then one of the best ways, one of the most effective ways for you to make sure that you've gotten beyond it is to have sex as a couple. And I would recommend that. Oh, wow, this is this is far out. I don't know about this church. Hey, this is this is the Word of God. There's nothing to be ashamed of. And there's nothing to be embarrassed about when it comes to these things. Unless we're rebelling against God. And isn't it interesting that our culture has made a husband and wife relationship having sex with one person for your entire life? We've made that kind of like, you know, foolish and, and we've made that embarrassing and oh I wouldn't want to admit that I was a virgin before I got married we've made that the thing to be embarrassed about but people get to flaunt the fact that they're sluts and whores and that they sleep with everybody that's around. Why is that the thing that we celebrate? That shouldn't be the thing we're celebrating that should be the thing that we are embarrassed about men should be embarrassed about the amount of women that they've slept with that shouldn't be something they brag about Wilt Chamberlain said he's been with 1,000 women. That's something to celebrate? No, that's something to be ashamed of. It's nothing to please those women one time. What is something is to please one woman for multiple years and decades and a lifetime. That takes a real man. That takes a man who knows how to love. Something to think about. And Paul here gives us some motivation toward purity. And some reasons why we would choose to flee from sexual sin like Joseph did. You remember Joseph? Potiphar's wife just strips off all her clothes. Now you put yourself in that situation then. You're standing there. There's nobody around. You're a young man. And here's this beautiful woman. She strips off all of her clothes. And what does Joseph do? He runs to the nearest exit. That's not easy to do. That's why Joseph is a man to be admired. We should flee like Joseph instead of embracing it like our warped culture. And despite the deception of the world and the devil, which tells us that we should do whatever makes us happy, or the other deceiving anthem of our culture is that God accepts everyone. So just do whatever you feel like. The Bible doesn't teach us that. The Bible says that God loves everyone, but the Bible does not say that God accepts everyone. God 
wants to change us. He loves us too much to accept us the way we are. And so we have to reject that. As he says here, let no one deceive you with empty words. Despite the deception of the world that would say, hey, just whatever makes you feel happy, whatever you want to do, God accepts everyone. We have to reject that. And we, we have to reject that because Paul gives us some pretty intense motivation to do so. We learn here that a person who practices sexual sin is an idolater. And we have to, we have to understand that in the original language, the idea here is the practicing of this kind of sin. That no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. It's a person that's practicing in an unrepentant way these sexual sins. And he says here that that person is, first of all, an idolater. They have made sex and pleasure their God. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that is the God that our culture worships. The God of sex, the God of pleasure, the God of whatever makes me feel good. And because of that, because they're an idolater and they put pleasure on the throne of their life, they are subject to the wrath of Almighty God and will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, he says here. Not, well, it'll all get weighed out in the end or or not. You know, that person made a commitment to Christ at like a youth camp when he was 12 or they went forward at a Billy Graham crusade. I don't see any of that mentioned. There. What he says is, if you are a person who's living in a lifestyle of sexual sin, you're not a believer. It's not an issue of eternal security or any of that sort of thing. The issue is what it says right here. And I don't get to choose these texts. We teach through the Bible. And so sometimes you happen upon things that you probably wouldn't choose to teach. This is not a text that most pastors are going to go, you know what, this would be a phenomenal topic right here. But when you're going through the Word, you're forced to read it and to teach it and to accept it for what it is. And it says these people who are living in an unrepentant lifestyle of sin, man, they're not saved. Because if the Holy Spirit is in your life, you cannot continue to do these things without repenting. Now, it doesn't mean that we're not going to struggle. It doesn't mean that we may not fail. It doesn't mean that, that we won't even fall into these things. But what it does mean is that we will repent, that we will be absolutely hammered by the Holy Spirit because we know it's wrong. And it just tears us up and it rips us apart. We don't handle it like I've seen many that just say, hey, I can do whatever I want. God accepts me. I'm a Christian. I can I can express myself this way. The Bible doesn't give us that kind of security. And hey, if you've struggled in this area, if you've fallen, look, confess it. Ask God to forgive you. Ask Jesus to cleanse you by His blood. The Bible promises that He will. This isn't a condemnation. This is a wake-up call for us to say, look, I don't want to face the wrath of God. I don't want to face the penalty for one who has just given over to these things. It should scare us enough that we, like verse 7 says, would not be a partaker with them. Second point, walk in holiness. Verses 8 through 14. Talks about walking in love. It's like, well, that doesn't seem like a lot about walking in love. Hey, that's all about love. It's about true love. Now he says, it's time to walk in holiness. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness 
but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. And so he says here, we were at one time darkness. Notice, not a product of darkness or a child of darkness, but we were the very essence of darkness. You were at one time darkness. And again, our culture says, no, we're born good, but our society and and evil influences just make you bad. That is not biblical. We are born in utter depravity. Our hearts are wicked and separated from God from the moment of conception. David said in Psalm 51, Behold, I was conceived in sin. It's part of our nature. Unfortunately, we were given that nature by our first father, Adam. It just passed on down the line. And know that, parents, that your kids are sinners. That they're not good kids in reality. That they need to be changed and transformed Their hearts need to be captured by Jesus. Don't be surprised at the things your kids are capable of. Don't be alarmed. Don't argue with your teachers because they're capable of it. I'm not at all in the dark about what my kids are capable of doing because I know what I'm capable of doing. I know what my heart is like. And it's wicked and it's evil and it needs to be put to death on a daily basis. It needs to be captured by Jesus. You guys, that is the most important thing you can do for your kids, is give them Jesus. It's the best thing about it. The absolute best thing about us. We're not a product or a child of darkness. We're actually darkness itself. We are rotten and pathetic in our natural state. But now, he says, you are light in the Lord. Therefore, walk as children of light. Notice the light is not a part of us like the darkness was. The light is from the Lord. So we don't have anything good in us at all. Romans 3 tells us there's nothing good about us. We had nothing to offer God. We've got to understand that. That when we come to God, it's not like a trade where the cross, you know, was part of it and then we give Him some of our goodness and we hope that it kind of works out. No, we had nothing to offer God. We come empty-handed and He gives us His righteousness. The light is infused within us as believers because Jesus resides in our hearts. Therefore, we need to identify with our new nature and walk as children of light. And when Paul speaks of light here, he's not talking about watts and lumens. He's talking about purity and holiness. He's talking about allowing the light of the world to shine through us. Remember Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Well, He resides in our hearts. The Bible tells us. And He wants to shine through us. Is He? Are we light to this dark world? And Paul gives us four results of Jesus' light shining through us. Verse 9, His light produces fruit. Jesus' presence in our life produces fruit. We don't have to work really hard at it. You know there's something interesting about fruit? You can't manufacture it. You can manufacture just about anything else, but you can't manufacture fruit. They might try and, and they try like with candy, but it's it's not the same, right? There's fruit candies. You can't manufacture real fruit. It has to grow on a tree. And the same is true in our life. We can't manufacture the Spirit's fruit. Only as we abide in Jesus does His fruit appear in our life. And you have to examine yourself. Say, man, is there fruit in my life? Is there evidence of the Spirit's work 
Just like you examine a fruit tree. And if it's not bearing fruit, there's only two things possible. One, it's not a fruit tree. Or two, it's unhealthy. Those are the only possibilities for us. You're either not saved, which, hey, that's okay. Get saved. Ask Jesus to come into your life. Submit to Him. Accept what He did upon the cross as payment for your sins. It's not too late. You still have air circulating through your lungs. It's never too late. Or, you're not healthy. Maybe you're a believer, but man, you're just sick and dying. Have you ever had a sick and dying fruit tree? We've had plenty of them in our yard because we don't water them enough, and we just cut them down eventually. And, and maybe you're sick, and maybe you're dying spiritually. And man, you need Jesus' life to just be infused in you. You need to quit living like the world. You need to submit yourself to Him, and you need to allow Him to produce fruit in your life. If there's no fruit, and Galatians 5.22 tells us what those fruits are. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Those are the fruits of the Spirit. And if those things are not a part of our life, not 100%, hey, we're going to struggle. But if, if, if there's none of that going on, you've got to say, A, am I a fruit tree? Or, or B, I'm really unhealthy spiritually. We need to identify with our new nature so that His light can produce fruit in us. A second thing, verse 10, that His light does in us is it illuminates God's will. It illuminates the will of God. It illuminates the Word of God so that we can see what He wants us to do. A third thing, verses 11 through 13, it exposes evil. He says, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. We shouldn't be having community with those things. We should be exposing those things. Just like when you flip on the light in a room, it exposes the things in that room. The, the cockroaches scatter. Have you ever noticed that, that much of what would be considered evil is done in the dark? Jesus wants to expose those things. He wants to turn on the light. And, and as we are the light of the world, as He's shining through us, man, we ought to be exposing these things. And don't be surprised when people are offended at you. Because sometimes light is offensive. Sometimes when your eyes aren't adjusted and someone flips on the lights, it's irritating. I had to take Andrea to the airport this morning. She went down to the pastor's wives retreat and, you know, she had to be there like five. So, you know, I told her, hey, look, when you're ready, you just, you know, wake me up and then I'll get out of bed and then I'll take you down there like in my pajamas. I don't need to get dressed. I'll come back and do all that. So like 4.30, a half an hour before we need to leave, you know, she flips on the lights. Okay, I'm ready, you know. And, and it's like, boom, the lights are on, and, it, and it's just, it's, it's alarming. And that's, that's what it's like when we come into the presence of people that don't know Jesus. And don't be surprised if there's things exposed that they don't like. It doesn't mean that we need to be an idiot or that we need to like be hammering people over the head. People should enjoy being around us. But there are times where they're going to be offended by us. His light exposes evil. And finally, His light wakes us up. Look at verse 14. Awake you who sleep. Arise from the dead. And Christ will give you light. You would think He was talking to unbelievers. He's talking to believers. But look. Wake up. Smell the coffee. Quit walking around in a stupor. Quit sleepwalking. Wake up. Rise from the dead. Tune in Tokyo. You know, it's time to realize and recognize what Jesus is doing and be aware of that and not just walking around 
like the living dead. Paul says, wake up, rise from the dead. His light will do that in our life. Lastly, quickly, we've seen walking in love, we've seen walking in holiness. The third thing that Paul talks about is walking in wisdom, verses 15 through 21. And Paul details five ways that we can walk in wisdom. First of all, wisdom redeems the time. Look at verses 15 and 16. See then that you walk, it's all about our walk, about our lifestyle. See then that you walk circumspectly or carefully, wisely, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Due to the depth of the wickedness and the evil that pervades our culture, we have to walk carefully, just like a soldier in the midst of enemy territory. He's not just like skipping around. He is being careful of landmines and of enemy gunfire. And we have to use wisdom in this battlefield that we're a part of called life. We have to use wisdom in our movement, in our decision-making, in our actions. And we have to redeem the time. There's two Greek words translated time in the New Testament. One speaks of clock time. And we're all bound by it. Some of us are more aware of it than others, you know. But we all understand the concept of seconds and minutes and hours, days and so on and so forth. We're bound by that. That's one word translated time, but that's not the word Paul uses here. Paul uses another word that refers to opportunities. And maybe we would think of it like this. There was a time. You ever said that? No, there was this time. And we're not talking about hours or minutes. We're talking about an opportunity. We're talking about a story. There was this time. And that's kind of what Paul is referring to here. He's talking about opportunities in life. And he's saying basically, it could be translated, capitalize upon the opportunities that you're given. Redeem the time. Paul is encouraging us to live lives that are freed up enough that we can redeem those opportunities, that we can capitalize upon them. Because we're all busy. In regard to clock time, we're all busy. People say, man, I'm just busy. Hey, we're all busy. But free yourself up enough that you can capitalize, seize upon those opportunities when they're given to you. That you're not just like in this fog that is totally unaware of what is going on and the opportunities that you have. Paul says, redeem the time. Step through those doors that are open for you. Remember the movie Dead Poets Society? With Robin Williams and, and his character is Mr. Keating and he's a, a prep school poetry teacher. And the first day of school, he takes his students out into the hallway where, where they have all the trophies and all the pictures of, of the past athletes. And he tells each student, get up close to the glass and look in. Look at these boys. They're your age. And now they're all dead. And you know what? We look at our grandparents. I got this picture of my, my grandma on our, on our picture table. And she looks just like my aunt. It blows my mind. But my grandma, she listens to these CDs, she doesn't look quite the same anymore. She's getting older. And you know what? As we are still given opportunity in our life, we need to seize upon those opportunities. As, he, as Robin Williams said to those students, see those boys? They were once your age. And then he said, carpe diem. Seize the day. Seize those opportunities, you guys, because soon you're going to be dead and you're going to be a picture in a hallway somewhere. Seize those opportunities that you have right now. Wisdom redeems the time. Wisdom seeks and knows God's will. Look at verse 17. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. He said that in verse 10 as well, that the Spirit of God 
in the light of Jesus shining in us helps us to find what is acceptable to the Lord. And here he says that wisdom knows God's will, understands what the will of the Lord is. It takes knowing you guys and understanding God's will to then carry it out in your life. You understand that? You've got to know it first. And God's will is revealed in God's word. And I think that what is often called ignorance in regard to God's will is really ignorance in regard to God's word. People always want to know, man, what's God's will? What should I do? Here's the thing. God's word will speak to us. It will give us wisdom. Wisdom seeks and knows God's will. A third thing is wisdom is controlled by the Spirit. Verse 18, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Do not be controlled by alcohol, or drunk with, or under the influence of any other substance, but be controlled by the Holy Spirit. God doesn't forbid alcohol consumption altogether here, just like He doesn't forbid sex altogether. What He says is, Partake of alcohol and of sex in the guidelines with which I've set up. Because I've given you all things to enjoy. And I believe that alcohol can be one of those. But we've abused it, just like we've abused sex. And so now in the church, alcohol is like, oh man, you know, we shouldn't do that. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that we shouldn't drink. In fact, it's pretty hard to get around John chapter 2, where Jesus made some pretty potent wine. And they were impressed by it. Oh, well, that was watered-down stuff, you see. And really, where? I don't know why people think that. Why do, do the Proverbs tell us that, that strong wine is a mocker? That if you are giving into it, into drunkenness, that it's foolishness. If it was just like grape juice, then it wouldn't be an issue. It is something God has given for us to enjoy. I personally don't drink, but there's nowhere scripturally that it tells us not to. But what we have to do is understand the confines and the guidelines in which God has given us those things to enjoy. And you have to know your own body. And you have to know, look, if I have a problem with it, I'm not going to blame somebody else. I'm not going to expect everyone else not to drink so that I can say, well, you know, they were stumbling me, which is absolutely taking that scripture and just twisting it to bits. We're too often stumbled. The Bible doesn't say that we ought to just go around, you know, um, not enjoying the things he's given us so that we don't stumble somebody. The Bible says that you need to be aware of your own body and not to give yourself over to those things. Now look, if you have a family member or a friend and they struggle with that, then I don't encourage you to have it when they come over. You have to use common sense. You have to use common sense in your own personal decision making in that area. But just like God doesn't forbid sex altogether. God doesn't forbid alcohol altogether. But what he says is don't allow your mind to be controlled by it. Allow your mind, have your mind controlled by the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. It means to be controlled by it. It means to be consumed with. The fourth thing is that wisdom worships God. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your hearts of the Lord. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a couple ways we worship here, and it's wise to worship. First, we worship through song, and that's important. And we place a high priority upon that here, and that's why we want Stuart to be freed up, to be able to spend more time in that. It's important to worship through song. But that's not all of worship. We've made that all of worship. That we come, we sing a few songs, and that's called worship. No, worship is your whole life. 
we gather together corporately to worship through music, through song, and that's important, but it's one aspect of worship. I think an even more important aspect of worship is found in verse 20. To give thanks always for all things. See, oftentimes people come to church and and they're just not able to enter worship, they say. Their their arms are folded, their 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 mind is consumed with other things, and they say, Well, you know, I, I just I, I didn't know the song. Or or I didn't like the uh the, the style, or it's too loud, whatever. No, what it is is it's a worship problem in your life. Because worship is an expression of our heart to God. It's giving thanks in all things. See, and often we come in to corporate worship and we can't worship because we're so consumed with the circumstances of our life and we're so heavy laden with those things that we can't bring ourselves to worship. And it's it's a heart problem. It's a problem with the sovereignty of God that says, look, He allowed it. He filtered it through His love. It happened to me and I'm going to worship Him in the midst of it. Just like Paul in Acts 16, there in Philippi, after being beaten with rods and thrown in prison, Paul worshipped God. So we worship because it's wise to do so. Wisdom worships God. Finally, verse 21, wisdom is humble. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. The idea of submitting to one another here, it's nothing to do with rank or authority. Paul isn't trying to subvert that idea. He's not trying to disturb that model that is set up in culture and society in the church, that there is an authority structure. And we need to be willing to submit to those in authority over us. But what Paul's saying here is that in the church, we need to submit to one another through humility, recognizing that we all have gifts that are given to us, that we all have a part to play, and we rejoice when others succeed. We rejoice when others are used by God and they're recognized. And we are not jealous. And we don't try to take their glory. That's what he means there. When he says submit to one another. It means to be humble. It means to never think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. It means to never see yourself as superior to another person. And wow, as we move in to the end of chapter 5. And we talk about the husband and wife relationship next week. And the first line is one of the most controversial verses in the whole Bible, right? Wives... Submit to your husband. But the the verse previous, submit to one another. Humility. We'll talk about that next week. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County, you may email us at info at calvarycrookcounty.com. Or if you would like to write to us, you may do so at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thank you for listening and God bless.